This podcast is brought to you by Upcase. Improve your development skills by completing coding exercises that are peer-reviewed by real humans. Learn more at upcase.com. I had this conversation with Joe Ferris where <laughs> talking about the date time, mm-hmm. the dateline. He was telling me that you can't go fast enough to go back in time. And I'm not still 100% sure that that isn't true. Wait, I'm sorry. <laughs> Are we talking about time travel? Yeah. Like if you start ahead of the date line. Sorry, you can't just drop that on me while I'm like tweaking audio preferences. Well, I'm sorry. Right, so back up. <laughs> I have no context. Okay, just so my context was I had this thought where you were adjusting the latency and I guess I guess I didn't express this. My brain said is there a way he can move the latency down far enough so he could hear what he says before he says it. Which like I don't know how technology Tough. works. Hard problems to solve. Yeah, yeah. It would be really useful though. Like think about that. Like you could say if you could hear yourself talking 5 seconds before you said it, then you could be like, well, that sounded dumb. I'm not going to say on. that. So many things are becoming clear. Do you not have an internal monologue? <laughs> no. <laughs> I don't think so. See, I have that. I might. think It plays in my head, mm-hmm. and then I decide, no, that would make me sound like a jackass. Oh. I shouldn't say that. Or that's incredibly stupid. Huh. I guess that makes everything else make more sense. Because like, I just say those things, and then immediately mm-hmm. say... Well, that was dumb. I don't know why I said that. I might try your way. I feel like I talk less, though. Maybe not a bad thing. (laughs) Hey, everybody. This is Gordon Austin. And this is Mark in San Francisco. And this is Build Phase. I'm recording in my kitchen today. The audio quality is great. It's a bigger room. It's the biggest room in my house, which is not saying a whole lot because my apartment is, I don't know how big your apartment is. My apartment's like 600 square feet. It's pretty small. I think that's about what mine is, yeah. like 650 or yeah. something. I basically got a kitchen slash living room, a bedroom, and a bathroom. I basically have a mansion by San Francisco standards. <laughs> right. right, 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 right. By Texas standards, I live in a cardboard box. Hmm. Yeah. No, when when the queen comes to San Francisco, she can stay here. This is one of her, oh, yeah. one of her places. You, you have to get kicked out. The queen of no, 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 San Francisco? Is it like no, no, the, no, Emperor, no, the Eng- Emperor Norton's? No, no, no. I'm talking about the real queen of England. The queen of lonely, lonely England. <laughs> lonely, lonely England. Topical. That's right. I am political. <laughs> I read the news. Mm-hmm. I actually did. I started reading the news more. The Yahoo news digest i must be the like the last person on the face of the planet to find out about this app but the yahoo news digest app which used to be sumly is fantastic it's great for news and all that stuff but like my buddy was here for a week sleeping on our couch and he was showing it to me and i just spent probably 20 30 minutes playing with it just moving stuff around because it's really slick i don't know if you've ever seen wait i'm confused i thought this was news what are you moving around have you seen the News Digest app? Not the News app, but the News Digest. It basically gives you like nine stories, I think, twice a day. They just like pick nine stories twice a day. You would love it. It's got tons of animation and all the interactions are perfect. It's got these really nice headers. You know, that typical, I have like an article and then I've got a big hero image 
in the table view header and then you but so it's got that except for that the headers are angled they have like an angled cutout to them and they just look slick there's these nice animations because it's got like a preset number of articles so like as you finish each article there's like a circle of the numbers and they like fill in dots and then when you finish they like spiral and it turns into like a check mark it's really like i'm telling you man it's like low bar but easily the slickest news app i've ever used that's awesome yeah i love apps that don't have a lot of chrome it's just like photos text Mm -hmm. and then do it well Mm -hmm. be creative about it yeah anyway what are you up to so i used ca replicator layer today Mm -hmm. i feel really proud of myself what does that do it is a layer in which you add any other layer Mm -hmm. and then according to a few properties it just replicates that one layer as many times as you want and with some transform applied to it and you can also add a delay so that if you're animating something in that layer it begins animations on all the replicas according to that delay so what's the use case there so for an apple example the stock activity indicator view Mm -hmm. the indeterminate spinner Mm -hmm. is implemented with ca replicator layer Hmm. so there's one layer that represents that the one tick and they have just spinning it and adjusting the the instance count is set to like you know 15 or something Mm -hmm. and then the transform is set to 360 degrees divided by 15 which is so the angle that each one of those is rotated Mm-hmm. about the center and then they just start an animation maybe with a delay hmm. and then it, it animates each one of those with with that delay hmm. that's cool we had a thing where we had to animate a bunch of app icons endlessly mm-hmm. from right to mm-hmm. left and have them repeat and so we just threw together a stack view full of ui image views and then put that layer in a replicator layer and said that we need like you know two or three enough to fill the width and then just put a move animation on that stack view layer just to go from like right to left, like one full width hmm. of the view. And you just throw it in there and then it just seems to endlessly loop. That's awesome. Yeah. What is this for? Like, I don't think I understand what it is. No, not really. It's it's just part of like a setup mm. process. Okay. Okay. And we wanted to showcase some icons. Okay. Got it. And so they just kind of like, it's when you're done setting it up, they just kind of like stream mm. by. It's pretty cool. Well, that sounds cool. I feel like it's not too often that you get to play with new. How old is that? Old? iOS 3? Ooh, shit. Okay. So I guess not what I mean is not new API, but new to you API. I feel like it's easy to get stuck, you know, using the same bits over and over and over again. Yeah, it started because my coworker came to me and said, like, how do you customize the animation duration of a scroll view scroll? because mm-hmm. he, he had initially implemented it by putting all of these image views in a collection view and was trying to manually scrub through it mm. and then was going to like reset it you know reset the animation so it looked seamless right and so i said i'm like you know why don't we just throw these image views in a stack view number one we get the layout that we want and then just right. put that in a replicator layer and just watch it go and it worked out beautifully so we ended up coming up with a a reusable like image marquee view you just Hmm. give it a bunch of images and you set the spacing that you want and it's all auto layout ready to go it's called start animating slick yeah that's really cool yeah there's so much shit in core animation Mm -hmm. so much this is one of those apis that i've known about but i've just never had a reason to use it see i'm not sure that i knew about that api it doesn't sound 
completely foreign to me, but so I might have read it somewhere, but I don't think that I've ever we've talked about this that my UI stuff is not my it doesn't interest me as much. And so I tend to gloss over it. Mm-hmm. But um that's interesting. It's crazy it's been around that long. Yeah. And that it sounds that useful and I we don't hear about that stuff that much. Yeah. I'd say like any sort of custom drawing you're doing that has a pattern to it. Mm-hmm. You could totally use this. Mm-hmm. Do you know about CA emitter layer? No. Does it, it emit layers? It emits particles. It's an entire particle emitter. Oh, wow. Yep. Wow. What is that used for other than touch events? <laughs> no, no. I mean, like it's purely for display. Like mm-hmm. if you wanted to have like a smoke effect mm-hmm. on an object that's fairly realistic, you could do that with CA emitter layer. Weird. Yeah, like you just define some particles and like what they look like, color, all kinds of properties, velocity, birth rate, lifetime, and they this layer just like emits particles. I actually don't know how it works under the hood, but mm. that's insane. There's a whole lot of stuff like that that I wouldn't expect to live in UI kit or core yeah. animation for that matter. Yeah, it's like this is clearly public because it existed somewhere. Mm-hmm. Where is Apple using CA emitter right. layer. Why did they write it? Right. I don't think they write anything that they haven't used. What and when they do write stuff that's like just for developers, it's total shit. Like core data. And iCloud. Yep. <laughs> Which is deprecated this year. It's only around for like three years. The iCloud core data stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's all cloud kit. Yeah. Core data stuff this year. Did you end up watching that session? No, I haven't yet. I haven't really watched too many. I was in Hawaii for mm-hmm. Dub Dub Week, mm-hmm. Smart. and I watched a couple. I was able to catch the keynote and the State of the Union, and I watched a couple sessions on the way back. Mm-hmm. I was home for six days and had to turn around and fly to Roanoke Yep, last Virginia. weekend, and was back within 36 hours. So it's just been like a crazy time since Dub Dub. It's yeah. finally settling down. I can watch some sessions. Did you watch the protocol-oriented programming talk? I didn't. For UIKit apps? I mean, I watched it last year i was unclear from the description if it was the same talk from last year updated or if it was a new talk and it sounds like it was actually a new talk yeah it was i think last year was purely about swift they kind of dipped into like core graphics as an example Mm -hmm. but this one was basically taking advantage of value types and protocols in the view and controller layers Hmm. of a ui kit app i think it was really interesting it was it was definitely worth watching they use a phrase, uh, local reasoning, which is like if a code has a high amount of local reasoning and you're, you know, you're new to it, you can go to any method and understand what this method is supposed to be doing because it's mm-hmm. not referencing a lot of State. distinct concepts yeah. that are like in other objects or like elsewhere in the type. Mm-hmm. And so they sort of applied that to this whole UI kit app. They get into a view controller and they're pretty quickly out of the view controller and into this whole hierarchy of structs to do work and then kind of bring it back and update the whole state of the view at once. It kind of seemed like react or like flow, Mm -hmm. but instead of there being this store for the app and it cascades down through all the view controllers, it's like each view controller sort of has this reactive flow stack thing, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Actually kind of made a lot of sense. They said a lot of the things that I had sort of been thinking and feeling about code lately, but haven't been able to really express. Hmm. I've slowly been going back to, putting more logic in the view controller, hmm. which sounds 
like the complete opposite of what we've been talking about for two years. <laughs> right. Right. But what I mean is that like the view controller is sort of back to being the hub for me of mm-hmm. behavior instead of kicking out to another object and having that be the hub and then having to define a new way for that controller to like communicate back with the view controller or if you want to call it a view model back to the view controller right too often that just starts to get clunky it's like am i using closures am i using delegation so i've been going back to like treating view controllers as the center of the universe and just using then a lot of objects to do very specific work and get a result back Hmm. and i think this talk kind of reinforces that so do you have actual logic in your view controllers then, or are you still pushing the logic out into other things? You're just dealing with them directly instead of going through a middleman. Yeah, that. That, because that seems it, reasonable. Because it, it's way more flexible. Like Now that I've gone down the road of messing with a controller and trying to kick all of it out into some object that the view controller works with exclusively... I've come back to like having it all funnel back into the view controller because that's where the view is. That's where all the, you know, the lifecycle events and stuff happen. I'm actually just writing less duplicative code. Yeah. Right. Cause you, you end up with a controller that almost sort of kind of mirrors the UI kit lifecycle. Yep. And so it's just like, just let the controller control, let mm-hmm. it manage all these objects together. Yeah. I think I'm on board with that. As long as you're still using smaller objects to do the actual heavy lifting stuff, and then just like calling out to a bunch of smaller, because that's just composition, right? Yep. That's the core of the talk is like yeah. structs and composition over reference types and inheritance. Mm-hmm. And they do a whole bunch of layout purely in Swift objects that is fully testable. They kind of gloss over auto layout, which I thought was a weird choice. Like it's all <laughs> manual frame math, but mm-hmm. all of that frame math is happening in structs that have mm-hmm. no dependence on UIKit. Nice. I think you dig it. Yeah, I should watch that one. There's still a few that I just, I saw and I was interested, but there was like another talk going on at the same time. It is weird that I didn't watch that one, but I watched both of those stupid iMessage app sessions. Stickers, man. Yeah. <laughs> I watched two hours of sticker sessions <laughs> and I missed the protocol oriented design one. I don't know. I feel like overall, not to make this show about WWDC, although why not? It's something to talk about. But I feel like overall, I I don't want to use the word underwhelmed, but like a lot of it seemed like logical progressions, right? Nothing made me super excited. Nothing felt like huge jumps, mostly. The core data stuff that they talked about made me interested in looking at core data again. Because they solved some of the problems that we've talked about on here in the past, like the amount of boilerplate needed to set up a stack and I guess they solve some of the threading issues not perfectly but it seems like a lot of this stuff is like behind a saner API and basically just that right like there's the context pinning stuff which I don't totally understand but mainly they just added a nice UI that we would have had to write ourselves on top of core data I'm not super up to speed on that context pinning but I think what that is is that you can have context around driving the UI that aren't necessarily in sync with the underlying store. Yeah. And I would guess that that's because if you're doing a huge migration, for instance, you don't want to block the UI while that's happening. And so you can restore the UI from what you had previously Mm -hmm. and display what was there using this old context while this migration is happening. And the next time you go to the background or the next time the app is launched, 
then you're fully back in sync with the new yeah. model. Yeah, that's it exactly. Yeah, I don't remember the specifics about it, but I'm sure I remember there was another one that I was like, oh, that is actually the notification stuff I think is great. I don't know if you watched any of that or heard uh, about you're any ta- of that. You're talking about the upgraded APIs and foundation? No, the new notification frameworks. Oh, 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 the UI notifications. Yeah. I, I haven't. Yeah. I haven't. I've briefly looked into it just to see. The two things that I really like are one, just normal use stuff is having like a unified API around local and remote notifications that they're just the same now. <laughs> they're just notifications. And it's just an implementation detail which that some are triggered locally and some are triggered remotely, right? Because that always drove me absolutely crazy trying to figure out that mental split. And then the other thing, purely from a consulting point of view, is that you can you can choose to display notifications while the app is active. So that long-term is probably not a big deal for most people. That's not going to be a big deal to you, right? Or it's not going to be a big, big deal to most product companies. But for me as a consultant, we always have to build out push notification support. And then we always have to explain to them why they don't see notifications when the app is active, right? Because we have to catch those and then we have to write our own custom UI. So there's always this delay between implementing push notification support and getting the custom UI for their custom alert stuff set up. And now being able to just say like, no, 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 just show the alert. (laughs) It's going to save me just so much time and hassle because I could just opt into that and then have it show the local alert and then eventually at some point that then deprioritizes the work that I have to do. It makes it easier to push that custom work back and say like, Oh, okay, well we will get custom notification support at some point in the future, but like I can deprioritize that and try to ship faster. Does that solve like a lot of the state management that they sort of forced us into with the old API? I don't know. And I'm still, you mean around like tokens and stuff like that? Not just that, but like knowing what kind of state the application is in. For instance, like knowing that you have to handle that push notification and show it internally yourself. Because it's not enough to just be like, well, we're in the foreground. It must be okay. Or we're in the background. It's like, were we launched from a push notification? Right. Were we woken up in the background by a push notification? Were we opened? Yes. Were we opened directly by the user? Are we currently in the foreground? Are we in the foreground after we were launched by the user? There's a ton of state that has to be tracked to be able to do the right thing. This is kind of top of mind for me because I was looking at uh, Superdelegate, which is an open source library that Square released during DubDub. And it's an object that conforms to AppDelegate and you conform to that. And it handles a lot of the hoop jumping for you. Hmm. It's all separate delegates that you can conform to. So if you, it's just like remote notification handling. So you just conform to that and you implement a few methods, hmm. but it handles all the state internally. And so I'm wondering if that new so- notification or if that new system fixes that. I feel like, and I don't remember the specifics, but I feel like they did simplify the execution path, right? That everything now just still goes through app did finish launching. I feel like I feel like that's true, but it's been a while since I, you know, it's been over a week since I watched that session 
And so I don't remember the specifics, and I haven't done anything with it because the project I'm on right now is still iOS 9. So I don't know the specifics, but I feel like they did simplify that code path. Like I remember them saying something along those lines of like, everything just goes through this one way now. And it was like, oh God, yes, thank you. I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure that they did. I mean, good for them for just pulling out behavior that's lived in the application delegate for so, so long. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, out of all the types that do a bunch of random non-related shit, the application delegate is the worst. Yeah. Have we talked about this before? What's the, this might be already leading because of what we're talking about, but like, so the rails people talk about like, okay, well, what's the first thing if you want to get a handle on how the app is put together, a rails app, what's the first thing that they do? Right. And they always, people will say, oh, I go into the routes file. And I like, look at all the routes. Mm-hmm. The app delegate is that for me, but not necessarily like if I'm coming on a project, like a legacy project, I will open the app delegate first and look at it. But it's not even to get a overarching view of how the app is structured is to see what kind of a shit show I'm about to get involved in. Right, right. <laughs> you know what I mean? If I open the app delegate for the project that I'm on right now, it is 11 lines. All it is is the shit that I need there. And then it calls out to the appearance manager to apply like global styles, right? So it does like UI appearance shit, but it calls out to a thing. So if I open that, I'm like, oh, whew, okay. <laughs> this is going to be, this might be okay, right? And sure, other crap might still be wrong, but it's like when I open a project, has been sitting around for a while and the app delegate is like 300 lines long and is doing everything under the sun. It's just like, Oh no, I'm in for a world of hurt. Yeah. Looking in there is like going to like someone's house that you've never been to before. And then you excuse yourself to the bathroom to go see like if there's carpet in there <laughs> or like how clean the tub yeah. is. Cause it gives you like a pretty good impression. of this it's, person. it's worse than that. Right. It's like going into their bedroom and like opening the bottom drawer of their dresser, right? It's like, where's the shit that you don't think I'm going to find? <laughs> and you tried to hide away from me, right? Because that's what it is. The app delegate is like the ultimate junk drawer, right? Because people just abuse the shit out of everything about it. People get into temporal coupling issues where because they're abusing the fact that it's the first thing created, right? And well, I want to make sure that this is this is stood up for my poor architecture decisions have decided that this needs to be stood up before anything else. So app delegate, right? People abuse the fact that it is a global singleton <laughs> that you can access off the UI application every time. Like, oh, I need to get to this, but I don't know how to get to it. I did that, right? When I was starting out, like I didn't understand singletons, how they actually worked, but I knew that the app delegate was always around. And I knew that I could do app UI application dot shared application dot delegate and get to that thing. So let's put our Facebook authentication thing there because we need to hold on to that forever. So it makes sense to put it there. I feel like there is a healthy middle ground. Like, you know, I've definitely seen the apps that have like delegate singleton method that like casts it back and makes it available everywhere. That's obviously awful. (laughs) And I've seen apps that like have horribly sort of non-organized app delegates, but like I don't blame people for that so much because like there's so many callbacks for so many different things. And I think that I've also seen apps that 
try to religiously separate everything out. And I think mm-hmm. that sometimes those can be confusing and hard totally. to follow just because it's all spread apart. Like you can't see how anything hangs together. I think there is, has to be some middle ground there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The app that I'm working on right now, it doesn't handle URL schemes. It doesn't handle push notifications. It doesn't handle a lot of those kind of things that you actually do need to add stuff to the app delegate to because it's the only thing. It's the entry point for your app. So like obviously my, my example of like an 11-line app delegate is skewed towards had you talked to me before I added styles, it would have been... What happens if I delete this function? It would have been six lines, right? Because it would have been like import UI kit at application main and then the class definition and then a optional window property. I would argue that your appearance stuff should go in a UI window subclass since it's all mm. UI related anyway. And that then you doesn't even create that window yeah. and assign it. And like it statically guarantees that all of that appearance proxy stuff that has to be set up before your UI is stood up, mm-hmm. that it is like right. it's happening before creation of the window returns. So there's no way to screw that up. That's interesting. That's a good point. This app is just using storyboards. Like I always get stuck in this kind of battle between things like that and just needing to ship. You know what I mean? So like this app, the timeline for this app is six weeks. Wow. Yes. That's nothing. <laughs> right. So we're already saying, sorry, you can't have that custom UI. We're going to use this default thing instead. And like, that's just the way it's got to be. And it was part of our negotiation with them when we took the project was like, we'll do this, but we don't do projects that we don't think we're going to be successful in. And we don't think we we're going to be successful if we do any custom UI. So when we say we need to use this stock element first, we need to use a stock element first. So balancing that with right now, we're leaning on the storyboard support for projects. You know what I mean? So we just set the main storyboard and it wouldn't be a huge jump to go from there to creating a window subclass because that's simple code, but it would be work, right? I could build out an endpoint or that. So it becomes a weird trade-off. Well, I mean, with storyboards, you, you're not even in control of your window anyway. Yeah, but what I'm saying is I could get rid of that main storyboard thing and still use storyboards as instantiate it directly. Got but it. just initialize or instantiate initial view controller, assign that view controller into the window as a view controller. Yada, yeah. Yada. yeah, I mean, at that point, your custom window could just take in a storyboard. Oh, yeah. And then grab the initial off it and make it the root view controller. Hmm. That's a cool idea. I don't think I've ever subclassed UI window before. I did. I recently worked on a like a passcode implementation. I think I talked about this. Oh, I yeah. ended up using a, a custom window. Basically just because it has a visual effect view in it and it blurs out the content below it. So this just shows you how little I've played around with it. UI kit or iOS doesn't flip out about multiple windows anymore? No, it's pretty good about that. Am I making that up or didn't it use, did it used to flip out? It didn't like when an application, am I totally making that up? You might have that impression solely from me from the last time I wrote a passcode thing <laughs> okay. in like 2012 okay. and I was battling UI window, but I, I knew a lot less then. Okay. And I think I was just using the API incorrectly. Okay. But um, 
No, it. I mean, it's okay. iOS itself uses lots of windows. Mm. Alerts are shown in right. a window. Right, right. The keyboard is in its own window. Right. No, it's worked pretty well. The only wonky thing is like the handoff of um, status bar control mm-hmm. is not really customizable. You can't animate between them. Mm. It's yeah. like at some point it just goes, oh, this window's gone. So I'm going to like figure out which window's key. And then that root view controller is going to start walking down and figure out right. who's in charge of this thing and like what color <laughs> it's supposed to be. Right. That's That part's a little weird. Right. Yeah. I mean, I remember when they made that change to move alerts into their own window. That was, I believe, in iOS 5. Because I remember it breaking our KIF tests on my client project because all of a sudden it couldn't click the okay button on the alerts because it couldn't see those alerts because that window is being controlled outside of the application process. Yeah. Custom windows are apparently how they're recommending you use uh, or like move to UI alert controller Hmm. for alerts and action sheets. Since those are view controllers, if you're in a view and you want to show one, create a window, they're recommending, yeah, you create a transparent window and you present it on the root view controller. That's interesting. I would argue that like no view should be doing that and it should be like delegating back up to some view controller level, but right. whatever. Right. That's interesting though. Cause I tend to always think of it as like a view controller hierarchy and that's it. I always think about like, okay, going down in the stack. Okay. I need to present a thing. So I need to traverse back up the stack somehow, whether that's like a notification or delegates or whatever. I need to traverse back up in the stack to display this thing. I never really think about continuing to move forward in the stack by putting another window up. I think generally the the view controller way is the way to go. No, because, I, yeah, yeah. I mean, like showing windows, it's like you call make key invisible. And then when you want to hide it, you call make key invisible on some other window. And then you also have to change like the hiddenness of the window and the window level. The management of windows is not, right. is not super great. Right. I mean, the only reason I did it in the passcode is because I wanted to be absolutely damn sure that even if the application in the background was like presenting view controllers, that it didn't matter, that there was no way that the rest of the app could show anything on top of this. Right. Yeah. Lock, that but. totally makes sense. Other than that, I can't think of any other case where like like I would use a window. Mm-hmm. I mean, possibly. Yeah. Not anymore. I would say pre-presentation controllers if you were trying to like animate a view between two view controllers Mm -hmm. i would often like hide it in the view controller it's in and like move a screenshot of it up into the window right dismiss the view controller animate the thing back down but now like presentation controllers give you a container view you can just do all of that kind of stuff in right did you ever open source that pin lock thing no i can but i think in the meantime i'll just send it to you (laughs) <laughs> okay so i don't think it's ready to be open sourced yet. okay it's not even merged yet oh really well i had to shelve it for a while oh okay and i just got back to it okay my current project like i said it's this weird short timeline but it's also the most intricate project setup i think i've had since starting at thoughtbot where we've got three projects and a workspace, and then the CocoaPods project all pulled in. So it's like the app, and then all of the app dependencies, and then a SDK that we're building out alongside the app 
for the backends for like all of the like the networking and model layer and then a support library that exposes testing hooks for the actual backend SDK. So like the backend SDK, it doesn't make some initializers public on purpose because there's no reason for the app to ever create this, right? Like a promotion for a sale, right? Why would the app create that? (laughs) It wouldn't make sense. So we just don't expose those initializers, but we want to be able to like create fakes of these things for tests inside the app itself. So the type is exposed, but the constructor isn't. And so then we built, we wrote like a bunch of factory methods where we extended those types and added like a factory method that like just created a a fake pretty easily. Right. With some sample data. So it's basically like a factory method that takes the same argument, same type arguments as the constructor, except for it has default values. Everything has default values. So you can just say like dot factory and pass nothing and get the default. Or if you want to specify very specific things, you can say like user dot factory name is, you know, Mark Adams, right. And get a user back that's configured with that name. But I started seeing, I started getting really, like I went to implement something and I was really confused about like, where the hell do I put these things? Because we had those factories in the app bundle, in the app code and in the backend code. We had them in multiple places. We didn't want to expose them through the backend because they're not supposed to be public API, right? But a bunch of constructors aren't exposed and we didn't want to recreate those constructors through the app. You know what I mean? Like the the app testing bundle, like it was just in this weird state. So I like collected all that stuff together and put it in its own framework today where basically the gist is that if you were going to do at testable import backend in the app code, you put that in the support thing, right? Like that we, from the application test bundle, we should never be using at testable. If you need to do that, we put that in the support bundle. Does that make sense? Uh, kind of. So you're, you're testing the SDK. So the SDK has its own tests. The SDK has tests. The app has tests. And sometimes you need models. Sometimes we need models in the app in order to test stuff that the app is doing. And in the SDK, sometimes we need models to test stuff that the SDK is doing. So this is like shared need for this ability to create fakes quickly and easily. And so before we had that stuff in two different places, right? And it was like a minor inconvenience, but it's also made worse because parts of the API aren't finished yet. So we have stubs in place for a lot of this stuff. And we haven't been great. We're kind of mixing and matching. So we have like these factories and then we have like this stubbable protocol that knows how to make individual instances or like sequences of instances. There's all this stuff like that. All of that I think needs to be broken out into standardized because I went to, and I was like, Oh, I need a fake of like this user object. And I was immediately like, I have no idea where to put that. Do I make it stubbable? Do I create a factory for it? Do I create a factory in the back end? Do I create a factory in the, you know, it was like 
kind of a mess. Mm-hmm. And so this is just kind of trying to push towards unifying that API and unifying the logic around where to put that stuff. But it makes for kind of a cool, like, because the project hierarchy is more complex, it kind of makes for a cool, almost like a preview of Swift Package Manager stuff. Because what we settled on in terms of, like, repo hierarchy is that we have... I'm basically trying to follow what Swift Package Manager wants, right? So we have a sources directory, a single sources directory. There's three Xcode projects and a workspace, but a single sources directory. The sources directory has three subfolders, the app, backend, and support. And then those have all of their own directories and whatever folder structure they need. And then we have the same thing for the tests. So we have tests, app, backend, support. And then those have their own subdirectories, right? And But it makes it kind of nice and consistent. And it feels like, I don't know, it's interesting to me that we ended up with a project that has such a short time frame coming up with, like I said, like I don't think since I've started here, I've worked on a project that has basically four moving parts, if you count pods, all kind of like working together in the same framework or in the same workspace to output like an app. It's been interesting. Hmm. We have a similar setup, but I, I think the reason we haven't hit that problem is because all of the models we get out of the Venmo kit, mm-hmm. they are also publicly, most, I think all of them, publicly conform to dictionary serializable and dictionary deserializable. Right. And so in the test bundle, we have just been adding lenses as needed mm-hmm. that go to JSON to make tweaks and then come back from JSON to effectively give us like mutability while even though we're not mutating, we are getting new objects, but right. we just add lenses that use the dictionary, like the raw version to go yeah. back and forth. I like mocked up a thing. So one of the things that I've, and we've had this conversation before years ago, but one of the things that I feel like is still in need for us is something like factory girl on iOS where Factory Girl is a it's a Ruby library that we do at Thoughtbot that makes it easy to create fakes or not fakes, dummy objects, really. Basically to create instances of your models quickly that you can customize the attributes, I guess is the best way to say it. And it kind of like people have done it a little bit in Objective-C, but it kind of sucked. We've been using a lot of initializers with custom initial, like, well, these factory functions, basically, where you have you have basically a custom constructor that has default values for everything, and everything is labeled. So if I want to create a user that just has the name changed, all I say is, like, name is, you know, whatever. So part of this is, like, trying to see if I can go farther than that. I started playing around with like, well, what if we create a like buildable protocol where the buildable protocol has like just says you need to have a build function and that build function needs to take string to any object and return an instance of self. And then basically wrote a new version of Argo's, the angle bracket pipe operator that just because that was the only thing I could it's first thing that came to mind, but that basically returns optional values of it does the casting. So it like pulls the key and casts to the requested type. 
So you get an optional back where it tries to pull the key, it gets in any object there, and then tries to cast it to whatever you ask for. And if that doesn't work, then it returns none. And then using that along with like the nil coalescer to define, so you basically define uh, an extension where like user is buildable. And then you create this build function and you say like, basically here are the keys that I expect to have in this dictionary. I expect these keys to map to these values. And then here's a default value if it doesn't exist. I don't understand what you're doing with the keys. Are you using mirror type? No, 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 nothing nearly as complex. It's very, very dumb. I just spiked this out within like five minutes. But so like the buildable protocol just has a build function. And then there's a build. So the protocol buildable protocol just has a build function. And then you write these like static funk build where it literally just says ID is params pull the ID key or one name is params pull the name key or Joe Bluth. Right. I see. Okay. So this still depends on you having an initializer that, that is this protocol can see. That, yeah. 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 Interesting. Yeah. So, you know, our deal is, is that the only initializer that the app can see is that one from JSON. And even that, now that I think about it, is probably an oversight. Like that probably doesn't have to be visible to the app code. I'm not sure why it is. Mm -hmm. Why not have all your model objects just be protocols and just pass them around as such? Like just have a user protocol and then call it like have a concrete user. Yeah. That is totally private to the framework. Mm -hmm. And then you could have, then it's, you know, dead simple to fake. And so I was kind of wondering, can you use reflection on protocols to get at like the members that are supposed to be part of it? Because I yeah. think if you could, you could have a tool that would just, one, it would have to generate some simple. things that conform yeah. to it. And mm -hmm. then, and then two, there'd be another component that knows how to actually build those and insert fake data into them. And I think the way that would work is like another protocol or some way of registering keys mm -hmm. that it would actually match up using reflection to like a type that's like first name last name street mm -hmm. address and so you say that like this thing should be this type of data so when it goes to build it it can actually just put fake data in it yeah i don't know i think i'd feel comfortable with that just because it's all for testing right i don't care that it's slow the only thing that i it would need is the ability to customize specific parts right Right. Yeah. So in addition to like registering like a type with a key, you could probably also just register a closure to a key. Mm -hmm. It goes from like T to U or something, any object to T, I guess. So you could just literally implement that and give it anything you want. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't know. I think I just need to do more research and see if there's anything out there that does this. Cause I, I don't know that I have the bandwidth for another project. Yeah. Anyway. I don't even know why I started talking about that. Oh, I do. Yeah, I remember. Because when I posted this gist, Tony was immediately like, and rightly so, was like, this is almost Argo. Like, you could just use Argo to do this, to like just pass JSON around and then get these objects back. But then the only two things that are different is that I would rather not use dictionaries for this because it's getting back to like a stringly typed API. Like it'd be so much nicer to be able to have like a build function that was generated maybe that automatically took the 
and this is where like code gen comes in, but like generating code, like for these factories that would automatically take in like, so that you could, instead of having a loosely typed string key value thing, like actual parameters for this build free function so that it didn't have to take a dictionary. And then I'd want non-optional objects, right? Where Argo is going to be safe about it and I don't need it. I actually don't need it to be safe at this point. All I need is for it to give me the objects because I'm going to ensure that it's all instantiated. I mean, at the very least, you could scan every, you know, like use source kitten and scan every every type that conforms to some protocol and then generate a fake instance that conforms to that, but also gives you, it, it makes all the properties mutable and gives you an initializer. Right. I'd use that. Hmm. Meandering episode. I think my brain's yeah. dead right now. <laughs> all right. Okay. Show notes for this episode are going to be found at buildphase.fm slash 97. And as always, we'd like to hear from you. So email us at hosts at buildphase.fm or reach out on Twitter at buildphase. And as always, we really appreciate ratings and reviews on iTunes. All right, man. Talk to you yep. later. Good talk. See yep, you. Later. <laughs>